Welcome to this week's episode of All of the Above. All of the Above is a podcast of the Church at Greer Station where we couldn't decide whether we wanted to talk about books or philosophy of ministry or whatever, so we said we're going to talk about anything we want. We're going to call it All of the Above. Now, one of the joys of being a pastor is officiating weddings, and this past June, I was co-officiating a wedding for a couple in our church, and I got to meet today's guest, a guy named Brian Williams. Brian and I met that day, and I discovered that he is the author of a book about C.S. Lewis. That's right, C.S. Lewis. If you know me, you know that I'm a huge Lewis fanboy. His work has been deeply formative for me. I'm super appreciative of Lewis's thought and life and his work and all of that. So he and I bonded over a mutual love for Lewis, and I thought, man, I have an excuse to talk about Lewis some more with our church family now. So I invited Brian to be on our podcast to talk about why Christians should read Lewis, the essence of his message. And uh, yeah, I hope you guys appreciate it. I hope you enjoy it, Brian. Uh, he, he wrote a book called C.S. Lewis, Pre-Evangelism in a Post-Christian World, Why Narnia is More Real Than You Think. He did his dissertation on Lewis. Uh, he's a good brother and uh, someone that I'm, I'm pleased to, uh, to invite on our podcast and share some insights. So give it a listen. Hope you enjoy it. So, Brian, introduce yourself to us. Appreciate you being on the podcast, man. Tell us, who are you? Tell us about your family. What do you do? Where do you live? Hey, All Trevor. Uh, yeah, thanks, man. Thanks for having me on. So, I am married to my wife, Jennifer. We have been married for 15, or is it 16? <laughs> so, somewhere in their years, we have uh, two children. My son, Pierce, who's 13, and Claire, our, our daughter. She will be eight at the end of this month. We live in Wake Forest, North Carolina. We moved here from Memphis, Tennessee in 2008 to attend seminary here at Southeastern. We both finished up several years back. I did a degree beyond the master's and um, I work for a company called Global Knowledge selling IT training. But my real passion in life is teaching the Bible. I teach a, I teach a class at the church we go to here in Raleigh and then writing uh, as often as I can. Yeah, right on. Speaking of writing, um, one of the things that I, after we met, you gifted me your book, which was the, correct me if I'm wrong, it was your dissertation, but maybe simplified a little bit or, or made a little bit more accessible. Yeah, that's, a, that's right. It was, it was my dissertation made less boring. <laughs> if, yeah. if I did it right, you know, um, took all the uh, needless jargon that they make you put in there to make you sound smart. And yeah, uh, tried to make it accessible just for, for Christians sitting in the church, sitting in Sunday school classes in the pews so that they could understand who Lewis is and why I think he's so incredibly important for us. Yeah, that's great. So uh, transitioning right into the conversation, the, the topic at hand on C.S. Lewis, I'm, I'm one, of the, one of the ways we connected when we initially met was over a mutual love for Lewis. So yeah. tell me, man, how, how, did you, how did you discover Lewis and when did he become meaningful for you? <laughs> well, Lewis found me when I was in, my, uh, was in the second grade. I had a teacher who would, she would read the line, the witch in the wardrobe to us at the end of class every day in a public school. And uh, this was in Memphis, Tennessee. And she would take like probably the last 15 minutes of class every day, go to the front of the room and, and we just read, you know, a few pages out of the book. And Trevor, man, I was enchanted. I, I wanted to get into the land of Narnia, like nobody's business. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, and that just started uh, an interest it didn't start an interest in Lewis because I didn't know who he was. I just loved this book and I'd check it out all the time. And, and then later, um, 
my, my grandparents bought me the set when I was eh, maybe a few years after that. They bought me the set of the Chronicles of Narnia. I, I enjoyed those. And then after I became a Christian at age 20, I then discovered who C.S. Lewis really was. And I went back and read all the books again and realized all these connections I had missed, man. That, And then realized that he's this great apologist that helped Christians know why they believed what they believed. And just an all around a, a wonderful Christian man. Yeah, that's great. So it was, yeah, it sounds pretty similar to my story, like being, being familiar with his stuff as a child, finding his, his fantasy stuff to just be enchanting, as you said. And then later on is maybe, at least for me, I was kind of taking my faith more seriously and was personalizing it a bit more and realized that he had this whole corpus of nonfiction stuff that he had written that was incredibly, incredibly helpful. And, and in some ways was kind of the, I don't know, the behind the scenes of what he was doing in, uh, in Chronicles of Narnia. And uh, yeah, kind of kind of made the uh, the Narnia stories take on a new light once I sort of discovered who he was and what he was up to kind of outside of that world. Yeah, real similar. Kind of very, very much the same for me. Yeah. What would be the what, what would be some of the first nonfiction stuff that you got into that you really appreciated of his? Um, let's see the first non. What did I read first? I, I probably read Mere Christianity okay. uh, first and then. Um, I want to say I came, I came across, well, screw tape letters, you know, that's kind of a genre of its own, right? I, I remember reading that pretty early on. And, uh, and then the problem of pain is his argument for the existence of evil and maintaining God's goodness. Mm. That was a, that was a book I read early on that really helped me out a lot. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So let me ask you, I mean, this is kind of the question at hand, like in your mind, why should Christians read C.S. Lewis. Gosh, we, we need like four hours, man. <laughs> well, I, I, I've given some thought to this since uh, you and I talked about it. Um, Lewis, he is a real help for curing us of what he needed to be cured of in his own life. He called it chronological snobbery. Hmm. Like many young people, when we're coming up through college, especially in college, and in our younger, maybe our 20s and maybe even 30s, if we don't get it worked out of our system by then, whatever the new hip kind of philosophy is, whatever the culture at large is really the bright, shiny object that everybody's running after, it's so enticing to, to go that way too. And Lewis was no different until he, he had a buddy who helped him understand this, and, and his friend just encouraged him to read old books. And he encouraged him that this idea of chronological snobbery, it was the idea that we're, we're snobs in our present moment. We think we know better than everybody that came before us. We're, we, 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 we picture ourselves on this trajectory of always getting better and better, getting smarter, getting wiser, getting more moral, more, um, uh, you know, improving. And Lewis saw that was not at all the case. So he, he read old books and, and that helped cure him of that. And I would just say that's one of the reasons that people need to, would would benefit from reading Lewis today is that he will help us understand that the thoughts that we think, what what we think is common sense today, has not been common throughout the history of the world. It's not always been the way people have thought. And if we'll go back and we'll read old books, it, it'll they'll challenge us on the ways that we think and probably correct us in some ways too. That's one thing. Another reason is um, I think that we are living in a day where I don't know if maybe the most 
naturalistic day we've ever had in America, at least, uh, where and by naturalistic, I just mean you know, the belief that God's not there. There's no such thing as God. What all what you see with your five, what you experience with your five senses, that's the whole world. And what that does is that really disenchants the world for people. Mm. And you see this manifested in, in, I just call it apathy. People going through the world, just trying to make as much money as they can, buy as many toys as they can, go on as many vacations as they can. And we're, we're so blessed in our, in our nation with so much affluence. Somebody's called it affluenza. Mm. And so it's almost like we don't have so much the problem of evil. We have the problem of pleasure. We've got so much of it, and yet our souls are dead and dry mm. and empty, and and yet you'd think people would be crying out in the midst of that, but strangely, Trevor, they're not, man. A lot of people are just apathetic. Mm. If you could write a, a word for their view of reality on their tombstone when they died, it would probably be the three-letter word, meh. Mm. Just mm. meh. And so I think what Lewis does, man, he he helps to re-enchant our, our imaginations, when you read his fiction, he, he shows you things that we don't experience much in our world anymore, a sense of the sacred, a sense of, of the numinous, he calls it, which is the idea that the presence of something that seems to be outside of this world, but is unmistakably powerful, mysterious in some sense, but is really there. Mm. And uh, he, he brings that back to us. And Lewis, yeah, he, he just he, he sets your imagination on fire. And I think Christians need that today. And as you know, well, man, even in preaching, how much does that help us when our, if our preaching is just kind of dry and abstract and it just mm -hmm. hangs out at that level, yeah. people, they, they, might, they might agree with what we're saying and they'll be helped to some degree, but it's like taking them through a desert mm -hmm. versus taking them through a, a lush land of trees and vegetation and fruit and Things they don't just look at and say, yeah, I see that, but things they delight in mm. and they're drawn. And that, that's where the imagination comes in. Mm. I think it can help with that. A um, couple other things I would say uh, in my book, you know, I talk about the need to pre-evangelize people. Yeah. And this, I think, helps do that. It helps awaken people. Lewis knew that if he just came at most people in his day and tried to have a conversation about Jesus, that he wouldn't even get a hearing mm. for many people. So he tried to sneak along Christian ideas through his fiction works in a way to kind of pre-evangelize people. So like if somebody fell in love with Aslan the lion, and yet they hated Jesus Christ because they viewed Christianity as outdated and stuffy and all oppressive, well, then they have to, to come to terms with what do you do when you realize that what Lewis has done, he's really put the character, the person of Christ, into the character of Aslan. So that what you were loving when you were loving Aslan, you were loving all the things that were really true about Jesus Christ. They mm. were just removed from their Sunday school associations mm. and brought over into this fantastic world. Your defenses were down. And oh my goodness, you felt really drawn to this character, Aslan. Mm. That, that can help. Sneak, what does he say? Sneak past, past the watchful dragons. It's exactly. His, yeah, that's exactly the metaphor he uses. Stealing past the watchful dragons, you know. Um, Lewis I also I he had a... What's that? I'm sorry. I was going to say, so kind of to your comment about the, um, the world being disenchanted, you know, one of the things I loved about Narnia, one of my earliest memories was the scene when the Pevensey children are sitting down to eat dinner with the Mr. and Mrs. Beaver in the very mm. first book. There's, there was something to me about that scene where I just, I wanted to be there. I don't know the way he described, you know, butter being on cakes and tea. It was like, I wanted to eat yes. it. And it's like yeah. this most, 
you know, mundane moment, but the way that he uh, enchanted is such a great word. It was just so magical and enchanted. I wanted, I wanted to go to there and I wanted to take part in that. And uh, there's something about, you know, what he's doing that, that kind of in turn pushes us back into the real world to see that, the, the real world is enchanted and, and regular dinner yes. conversations with friends and regular, regular, you know, times over cake and tea in our own living rooms and our own kitchens. Like those, those are in a way like that is Narnia, I guess you could say that the, the same yes. magic that's sort of present in that moment is the same magic that's present in, in all of those moments, as long as we're attentive to it. Yeah. Well- hundred percent. That's bullseye. I mean, when, when we read our Bibles, we do not read about a drab, dead, closed system kind of a world. Mm. We read about a world that is shot through with the presence of God and mm. spiritual reality. It's there. You, we might not see it with our physical eyes. We don't all get a Gehazi experience where Elijah opens uh, prays that he gets his eyes open and he sees the chariots and the armies off on the field. They were always there, but this angelic army. But that is the world we live in. Mm. And we don't need to be duped by our present world that just focuses on science and technology and, and has no room for mm. uh, the spiritual reality. Mm. That's good. I mean, w- probably a helpful segue. I mean, w- what would you say is the essence of Lewis's work or essences, I guess you could say, or, mm. is there anything central to what he's, what he's about, what he's trying to do that you would, you would kind of draw out as a central thread? God, that, that's a great question. I mean, Lewis, he described his own books at one point as like a cathedral where it, it, where everything fits in its right place. It's all interconnected. So part of the challenge of pinning Lewis down on a thought um, is he said so much. He, he painted such a broad picture of Christianity that all fits together that, I mean, I guess not to be too simple-minded, but an understanding of a Christian view of reality Mm. is really what I think Lewis helps with in the broadest sense. He helps us to understand what Christianity means and how we're to view the world that we live in, given the truth of Christianity. Mm. Now, to dig just a a little bit deeper, um, Lewis believed something that we are losing today. He was heavily influenced by Plato's thought. Plato had this idea, for for those who don't remember, remember anything from their philosophy classes, he had this idea that there were something called the forms, the essences of things, the, the unchanging universals. So I'm sitting in a chair right now. It's a particular kind of a chair. You can kind of see it. It's leather. It's maroon. I can describe the particulars of it. You're sitting in a chair, too. Very different. All the particulars are going to be a little different, yet we still know that they're both a chair. Plato would say something like, well, that's because of there's something called chairness, the essence of chair that all these particulars participate in. And he, he thought that that was something that explained the world. And he, he did this with the virtues. Also, he talked about what is justice? He said you can look at many just acts and just people, but what is the essence of justice? He was always after the essence of a thing. And so he had this idea that even though we live in this world that's always changing around us, I'm going to look at my window and those trees will look different in a couple of months, fewer leaves maybe, different colors, it's still the same tree, and it's still a tree. And Plato had this idea that there were these unseen, unchanging universals that somehow participate in the seen world that we experience every day. Lewis picked up on that, as did most of the early Christians, by the way, Augustine especially, they all believe this stuff. And, and he, he thought that, yeah, there, there are these unchanging universals, and especially the, the, what he's going to talk about is objective morality. 
Hmm. Morality is not just what you want it to be. It's not just how you feel in any given moment. It doesn't vary culture to culture in the universal sense, but there is universal goodness. And that's what God is. God is universally good, of course. And he's expressed this to us most clearly in his word. And so when you, if you read uh, Lewis's book on mere Christianity, he's trying to help people understand at the very beginning of it, that there is an unchanging moral law Mm. and that that law is an expression of God's unchanging character. So he was butting up against the relativism, even in his own day, you know, moral relativism, relativism of thinking. He's trying to bring a corrective to that. I think he does it best in the abolition of man for Mm. anyone that wants to go read that. That would probably be the best book that he does this in. And he knew that you, you, it was no sense talking about Jesus being our savior unless there was some real moral law that's really there as a feature of the world we live in that we have actually broken so that we have real moral guilt before a real God who's really there. Lewis knew that if the world was moving away into this moral relativism, Jesus just becomes a kind of a take it or leave it sort of a person. So Christianity loses its, its power, its oomph. I would say a lot of what Lewis does is trying to bring these ideas that were fading off of out of people's minds, the objective moral law, a real view of objective beauty even, um, and trying to recapture those things so that Christianity remained what it really is. Mm, that's good. Yeah, that, make, that makes sense why he, re, he re, in the uh, opening pages of Abolition of Man, he responds so strongly to the Green Book. You know, we, we use this example, you could, you could fill this out better. I, I don't necessarily remember it off the top of my head, but it uses the example of a, um, wasn't there an, an author who heard about a story where yeah. people were observing a waterfall and somebody said, this waterfall is sublime. And the other person said, you're just experiencing it as sublime. And Lewis is kind of using this experience to say, um, th- there has to be a real, a real sense in which we can say the waterfall is sublime. We don't, we don't just experience it as beautiful. We don't just perceive it as beautiful. It actually is beautiful. And sort of the, the task of becoming virtuous, good people is, is getting to where we can look at beautiful things and acknowledge that they are beautiful. Yes. So the old adage, you know, beauty is not simply merely in the eye of the beholder for Lewis, you know, beauty Mm. is a universal thing. The philosophers talked about truth, goodness, and beauty. Mm. These are universals. You can, see, you can look at a beautiful beautiful waterfall like you just described in that scene, or we can hear a beautiful symphony. You can even have a, you, you, you hopefully you married a beautiful woman, your wife, and you could think of a beautiful idea even. But all these things are participating in beauty. And uh, yeah, Lewis was, he was reacting to that book because as you mentioned, the two guys are at the waterfall. One says it's sublime. The other says it's just pretty. And the question would then be, well, who got it right? And the Green Book author said, well, neither. They were simply describing their own in, internal feelings about the waterfall, mm, which mm. therefore means that they didn't actually say anything about the waterfall itself. They merely told you about their own inner feelings. Mm. And that's devastating to a view of truth mm. and goodness and beauty, because now what if I say that Trevor is a, Trevor's, Trevor is a good man? He is a virtuous man. Well, according to the Green Book authors, I've not told you anything about Trevor. I've told you about how I feel when I think about Trevor, mm. which mm. may or may not be true given who you're talking to. And so that that just obliterates our ability to speak about the world that we live in in any kind of objective sense. Mm. And if we can't do that about waterfalls and this and that, then eventually we can't even do that about Christ, can't do it about the Bible. And so Lewis saw where this led, and he, was tra- mm. he thankfully gave a, a great response to it. 
Hmm. What's the connection between that kind of divorcing of, um, gosh, how do you even summarize it? The, the connection between saying that when you experience beauty in a waterfall, that the waterfall actually is beautiful versus it's just my experience. What's the connection between that and our experience of the world as being disenchanted? That well, that's a great question. Um, let me see if I can do this uh, in, in, a, in a simple way um, and, and not take too much time. So the idea is that truth, goodness, and beauty, let me just start here. Truth, goodness, and beauty reside in God. He, he is, Jesus says on one, in one conversation, I don't just, he didn't just claim to say true things. He made a loftier claim. He said, I am the truth. Hmm. I am the truth. God himself is the truth. God is not just good. He doesn't just do good things. He is goodness itself. God is not just beautiful like something else is beautiful. He is beauty itself. So that truth, goodness, and beauty, they, they come out of God. He's the fountain from which all those things flow. He doesn't, he, it's not like he participates in goodness out there somewhere that's external to himself. Mm. He is the fountain, right? Mm. He doesn't draw on this pool of goodness out there and say, I'll go get some of that and act accordingly. It is who he is by nature. Now, if that's true, and I think it is, then when he creates a world and he makes a beautiful world, which he has made beautiful, it's only ugly because of the effects of sin, but what God has essentially made is beautiful. Now, that being the case, it's almost like if you're going through an art gallery and you're looking at paintings on the wall and you ask the question, who painted that? Somebody tells you about the person. You could learn a few things about the person even by looking at the painting because, hmm. you know, that came out of that person. That's what that person produced. So when we see beauty in the world and we know that beauty is a real universal thing that resides in God. So when I encounter that beauty, whether it's I'm at the Grand Canyon and it's simply the the awe that overwhelms me at this beautiful landscape, or I'm at some tropical place and it's a, maybe it's a waterfall and, and the lush vegetation. Whenever I'm experiencing that beauty, I can say something more than that. I can say I'm, I see something beautiful, but I also, I can look at the beauty, but I can also in a sense, look through it mm. and follow that line of beauty up to its source. Kind of like, and Lewis would use the metaphor you follow the rays of the sun back up to the sun. Mm. You ever seen a cloudy day where the sun's piercing through and you see the rays. If all you ever saw was that ray of light and you looked at that, uh, you saw something, but you could have seen more. If you'd trace the ray back up, you'd go all the way back up to its source. Mm. So what, what, what this practically means is God has put hints of himself glimmers of himself are all over the place in the world that we live in. If we'll make the connection, we'll realize that even as I'm enjoying this beautiful thing, I'm enjoying something of who God is himself. Yeah. And when you realize that, that then helps you understand the way in which one way in which the world really is an enchanted place Yeah. Wow. because you've got the rays, Lewis called it patches of God light are, are streaming down everywhere you look in this world. See, if we don't make that connection, we think, oh, I just feel that way when I see this, but there's mm. nothing deeper to be said about it. Mm. But the Christian has an answer that can really explain why people are often reduced to tears when they're in the presence of something incredibly beautiful. And if you read non-believers on this, they don't know what to make of it. Mm. They almost feel sad that their worldview can't wrap its arms around this enough and give it a good enough answer. But they look over here to the Christian and they realize, oh, my goodness. You guys have the answer that can account for this. Mm. 
Mm, man, that's good. Yeah. I, I was mentioning that my wife and I spent some time in Colorado this summer. And, uh, you know, I've, that's the furthest west I've ever been. I've grown up on the East Coast. And, you know, we have mountains here. But when you're in Colorado and you see, like, the San Juan Mountains, it oh. is just unreal. Just I've never unreal. seen a man. I want to go so badly. Well, it's, it's like a cliche to say that. Like, you, you just have to see it. But, man, it, it is overwhelming looking out and seeing something so big, seeing colors that are so vibrant and seeing something that's just so beautiful. Um, yes. That you're, I mean, th- there has to be a good, beautiful God behind that. There has yes. To be. And the, the other thing, you know, the other beautiful thing Christianity does, it, it, keep, it keeps us from making idols of those things. Mm. If I'm a, see, if I'm a naturalist, I feel like I can only go in one of two directions. When I see something beautiful like that, I can either make an idol of it and say, this is the ultimate beauty in this world that I live in is the ultimate source of happiness for me. And I'll make an idol of it. But guess what? It'll never, ever be enough. As wonderful as those experiences are, you got to have another one and another one and another one. And, you, and it'll never satisfy the heart. Or they go the other route and they just say, there's nothing really more behind this. This is simply my, my neurons firing, my chemicals within, my, just, just my body responding to this phenomenon outside here. And there's nothing deeper to be said about it. So you either kind of resort to just total despair over the beauty you experience and say, don't make more of it than there is because it's really not that big of a deal. Or you go over here and you make it an idol. Christianity doesn't fall into either of, the, either of those ditches, man. It says it's beautiful. And, and, and I think Christians can enjoy it better than anybody in the world because we don't ask of it more than it's willing to give. I don't ask that it satisfy my heart completely. It'll let me down every time. I go to it. I enjoy it. And I look right up to God and I say, thank you, God, for the beauty you've put here. And I find my ultimate satisfaction in him. So that's why I think the Christian can live with more joy than anybody. Yeah, wow. That's good. Man, that's really good. Uh, are, are there any things about Lewis's work that you would say to be wary of as a believer? Um, is there, or, or, you know, you hear the phrase, yeah. the meat spit out the bones. Are there any bones in Lewis's work that you would identify and say, hey, just look out for this as you, as you read and study and delve into Lewis? Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't even agree with everything I've written. So I've got some bones and books I've read and I've said, hey, man, I, on, in hindsight, throw that one out. Yeah, um, I'm sure Lewis was no different. You know, he's the only book we get that you don't have to do that with is the Bible. Every other right, one, you're right. going to find bones in it. Um, I think for uh, here's this one. So this is a, a grief observed. Um, I would not recommend a new Christian read this book um, hmm. because Lewis had lost his wife, Joy Davidman. and um, it was a tragic loss. He got he married late in life. And he's wrestling through his faith in this book. And he's kind of journaling through that. He's asking some really hard questions. It might make a new Christian feel a little jostled in their faith. Now, where he arrives at is is, is a good place. He's he's solidified in his faith. He's he's really come through it. But it's it's a it's a kind of a rocky journey going through. I think for a mature Christian now, it's a it's a fantastic book. But I would say I probably it's not the book I'd give to a if a new believer's had some grief strike them, I probably wouldn't hand them that book. Yeah. Um, you know, his view of scripture comes up a lot. Did he have a strong enough view of scripture? I'll just say this because we don't have time to do all this. Um, I'm probably not exactly where Lewis lands on his view of scripture. Um, some conservatives will feel that he's a little too loose, a little too little too liberal on his view of scripture. I'm probably sympathetic to that. However, that was due to Lewis's view of how language had sort of evolved over the course of human history. 
he was not motivated in the same reason a typical liberal would be motivated to do that with the Bible at all. And it's actually, Lewis writes articles against higher criticism and all the kind of lib typical liberal criticisms that come against the Bible. You know, we can't really know this, you know, multiple authors, we don't, somebody smuggled some stuff in. He, he, he didn't go for any of that. He, he wrote extensively against it. But I would just say, you know, I probably wouldn't base my, my full orb doctrine of the Bible on what I read in Lewis. The other thing is he do, he's, he's no help in finding what denomination you want to land in. And he admits <laughs> that. He's like, he's like, look, I'm trying to get people into the, into the house. What room you choose to go into, that's up to you. You know, he was an Anglican, but he's not going to help somebody. Know, you know, am I, should I go Baptist, Presbyterian, uh, non-denom, Anglican? I don't know. You know, he, he won't help much with that. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I that I have appreciated about his work is how how often the the idea of a kind of every moment we're presented with a choice to either uh, what's the famous quote? Um, it's either you know us saying to the Lord, "Thy will be done," or the Lord saying to us, "Thy will be done." Right? Yeah. Every moment we're presented with a choice between what we want and what God wants for us. Right. And always that kind of moment of conflict. Yeah. So he, he said on that line, that's where he says, he says, you know, hell, uh, the door to hell is locked from the inside. Mm, mm. Um, and his point was people have chosen their destination, whether they whether they knew fully what they were getting into. They have locked God out in a mm. sense that that's that's been a choice. Mm. And, um, and and then he says, you know, yeah, God will say to every person on that day, he'll either look at them with tears in his eyes and say, thy will be done because they wouldn't have him. Or he'll look at them with joy and receive them and say, my will be done because mm. he's not willing that any should perish. Mm. Yeah, mm. that's good. And, and yeah, you know, I, I was just bringing that up to make the point that, you know, if anything, Lewis is someone who presses me uh, towards more obedience and towards yes. a deeper willingness to make Jesus Lord over every aspect of my life, you know, kind of to the point that you made a moment ago that, you know, it's not that his, his view of scripture isn't born out of desire to sort of wiggle out from beneath the demands of scripture. Right. If anything, his his writing is pressing us to to further and more deeply consider the implications of Jesus's rule over that is life. And that is you worded that so well. And that is so key. That's really so key to understand what he's doing, because when you read about his career to uh, man, Trevor, he, he he was he was so unashamedly faithful to Christ. Mm. He, he had a zeal for evangelism. He kept to, he kept the a piece of paper and he had two columns on one side he had lost friends on the other side he had saved friends and he says somewhere i, I love it when i get to move a name from one column to the other yeah. and he had a friend who was literally embarrassed at how often lewis would just zealously share the gospel with people man he was unashamed and in his career he got passed over for promotions and jobs and whatnot because he was this conservative unashamed dinosaur of a christian who believed in all this old stuff that was outdated and stuffy and what that 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 challenges me, and I especially those of us, you know, in uh, if we're church planting and whatnot, it, it's kind of it's a new thing we're doing, and there can be that temptation to want to go with the new and the hip, just that sentiment that we got to be careful with it. Mm. New's not necessarily bad; new could be wonderful, but neither is new necessarily good and better than what came before. And I think Lewis shows us how to how to hold that that commitment to the truth strongly with courage. And sacrifice, even if it falls out of favor in the culture we're living in. Mm. Man, that's really good. Yeah, man. So if if someone are listening was listening to this and they're they're ready to kind of take their first step into the writings of Lewis, where would you recommend that somebody start? 
uh, so I'd, I'd want to just ask them some questions, but I'll, I'll give a few recommendations because I'd really kind of want to know where the person's coming from. But if, if they want to dive into fiction, I would say read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe first. That whole story started with an image in his mind of a fawn walking through the woods with parcels in his hand, an umbrella in the other arm, a snowy wood at night, and a lantern, a lamppost. And that that that's that starts the whole story, and and you get you come into that magical world in the line, the witch in the wardrobe, and I would say read that and just a, a Christian will catch what Lewis is doing in that. Um, if a person wants to just have Lewis's kind of most basic apologetic for Christianity, they just want to understand how did he start communicating to his culture about Christianity when he's just doing his apologetics. I would say read mere Christianity. Those were those were actually broadcast talks that he gave during the war, during World War II. And um, I heard a story of a man who was in a bar one time, and it, Lewis, he, they'd gotten used to him coming on, and, he, and, and the bartender said, men, men, everybody get quiet, put your drinks down. This man, Lewis, here really has something to say to us. Mm. So here's this Oxford Don who could speak to the everyday person and explain Christianity, and they wanted to listen. Mm. And that, that, that then becomes the book Mere Christianity. If somebody wants to, maybe another really good entry book would be, I think, Screwtape Letters, because you see how, how insightful Lewis is and how wise he is about understanding the nature of spiritual temptation, all the ways that we're tempted, and um, I think that'd be a good one, too. Yeah, man, that's excellent. And this, this, is, this has been a really great conversation, and yeah. there's so much more that we could, we could talk about. <laughs> I know, man. Lewis in 30 minutes, it's, it's tough. I know this has been great. <laughs> Especially for a guy who wrote a dissertation on Lewis, right? Yeah, yeah. Man, but this has been great, man, Brian. I appreciate your time. Appreciate you being willing to come encourage our church and provide some clarity on who Lewis was and what he was up to. Um, would there be any – tell us the name of your book. I mean, do, do you write regularly? Is there any way that uh, that we could kind of follow your work? And, and yeah. if it's not too forward of me to ask, are you have you thought about writing anything else related to Lewis? Yeah, so uh, the title of the book is, uh, I've got it here, C.S. Lewis, Pre-Evangelism for a Post-Christian World, and the subtitle is Why Narnia Might Be More Real Than We Think. Mm. Why Narnia Might Be More Real Than We Think, which goes back to that idea of beauty and the universals being present in the particulars. Anyway, um, I'm trying to uh, unlock that. Um, Another book I've written on the Old Testament is um, called Putting Together the Pieces, how to make sense of the Old Testament. And I wrote that for crew. Um, what I'm working on next, so here's an idea. I'll throw this out there. This is a little premature, but I've done some work on it. I'm thinking about a conversation between a Christian and an atheist who's actually somewhat interested in Christianity and just how they might correspond back and forth. They're friends and they're writing back and forth and there's challenges coming this way and that way, but it's a good conversation. I'm thinking about doing that in a way that I think would capture most of the cha- many of the challenges I hear that that come our way to Christians today. And rather than just writing an apologetic book, I'm I'm working on maybe doing this this back and forth conversation, kind of walk people through that. Yeah, man, I love that. I love that. That sounds really neat. Um, yeah, we can have you back on to uh, you know as that idea, you know develops a bit further and you get you get some uh, more momentum on on that book maybe we can have you back on to talk a little bit about a little bit about it that would be, that'd be very helpful as we think about evangelizing people who might be in that category so, yeah i'd love to do that man 
Yeah, right on. Well, well, Brian, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate you coming on and, and many blessings to you, man. Hey, Trevor, thank you. And hey, man, let me just say thank you for what you're doing at the church there. I know, man, the role of pastor is a weighty role. And um, I'm just grateful for guys like you and uh, for all that you're doing there, man. I know your church is blessed. Yeah, praise the Lord. All right, man. Thank you.